In our worship service this morning, we read and meditate for a while on Psalm 147. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up the meek. He casteth the wicked down to the ground. And now the following Five verses will be the focus of the sermon. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God, who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. He giveth to the beast his food, and to the young ravens which cry. He delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise thy God, O Zion. For he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates. He hath blessed thy children within thee. He maketh peace in thy borders, and filleth thee with the finest of wheat. He sendeth forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool, he scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sendeth out his word and melteth them. He causeth his wind to blow, and the waters flow. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments... They have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Last March, when we gathered together here for prayer day, We heard a message from Psalm 126. We heard about the sower who goes forth into the field in the springtime, bearing his precious seed and casting forth his seed into the field and weeping as he casts forth that seed. We saw that the sower weeps In the seed time, when he casts out that precious seed because he knows a multitude of possible ways those precious seeds could perish in the field. And he's casting them forth. He's casting forth his control over those seeds. And at the very same time, then, he's weeping, but he's casting himself wholly and entirely into the arms of his God to take care of those seeds, to nurture them so that they sprout and grow into a fruitful harvest. 
That was last spring. Now the seed time is long past, and the growing season is coming to an end, and we are entering into the harvest season of the year. It's October, and a day of thanksgiving is in order once again. That's why we gather together this morning to give thanks to God for the harvest, for his goodness, or to use the words of Psalm 65, we gather together today once again to say to the Lord, Thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness. They drop upon the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks, the valleys also are covered over with corn. They shout for joy, they also sing. But we consider this morning Psalm 147, and in this particular psalm, we see in our text in verse 7 that the psalmist exhorts Israel of his day and us today, sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving, sing praise upon the harp unto our God. The psalmist indicates in the psalm what time in the history of Israel he lived when he speaks of the outcasts of Israel being gathered together again by the Lord who builds up Jerusalem. The psalmist indicates by those words that he was among the captives who had been in Babylon, but who were now sent back by the decree of the king of Persia, who sent the Jews back to the land of promise, who gave the decree that they could again build up the temple and the walls and buildings of Jerusalem, God who had been with them in that whole process. And the psalmist now looks at the rain that has come down, the former rains and the latter rains in that land, and he sees them as an indication of God's goodness and mercy toward Israel in those days. We can apply the psalm very easily to ourselves. We as a congregation and we as a denomination could say, at this time in our history, that we have felt like outcasts at times. We have felt like God's people sent away into captivity. We have, sent, we have felt like God's people under his chastening hand, as we have through several years gone through controversy and schism and all kinds of difficulties. But what we must see this morning on Thanksgiving is that we also have much cause for rejoicing, much cause for thanksgiving. And as the psalmist says about his days, when they came back from captivity, we also can say about our days, God is restoring us through chastening. God is building us up again. God is gathering together the outcasts of Israel. He is healing the broken in heart, binding up their wounds. This great God who counts all of the stars and knows their names, this great God of infinite power and understanding, this great God who lifts up the meek and casts down the wicked. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. So that will be the theme of the sermon this morning. Sing unto God with thanksgiving. Let's notice the rain that God prepares for the earth. And then the delight God has in us who fear him. Finally, the calling we have to give him thanks. The psalmist calls attention in our text to 
God's marvelous, providential preparation of rain for the earth. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God, who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh the grass to grow upon the mountains. He giveth to the beast his food, and to the young ravens which cry. The psalmist, as an Israelite, knew very well that the land in which he lived, the land of his ancestors, the land of his day, The land of promise was a land that God had specially prepared and specially ordered so that it would be desperately dependent upon the rain. The land of Israel was not like other lands. It did not have a great river like the Nile or the Euphrates running through it, but it was a land of hills and mountains and valleys, of deserts. It was a land that depended year after year on the former rains and the latter rains so that the crops of the field could grow and flourish. Without that rain, if God would withhold that rain, as he did sometimes and as he threatened to do, if the Israelites would apostatize, then the land would become a barren wasteland. That's what happened, for example, in the days of Elijah. When God sent Elijah to King Ahab to tell him that because of your idolatry and wickedness, there will be no rain for this time. And the land became a wilderness. But the psalmist, in our text, lived in different days. He lived in brighter times. He lived in days after the return from the captivity, days in which God was restoring, building, and blessing his people, and God had sent the rains again. And so it filled the psalmist with a heart of gladness. And it led him to testify through writing this psalm that God is the one who sends those rains. We don't find anything in this psalm or in any of the scriptures from the pen of God's holy writers that they considered the rain to be just some natural phenomenon that they considered the rain just to be the result of some natural process, that the rain was just due to some natural laws that have just always existed. But the scriptures constantly testify that the rain comes from the hand of God. We find that once again here in our text. We found that in Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which mentioned there again that all things come not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand, opening his hand and bestowing upon the earth his good gifts. That's the truth of our text, the truth of God's marvelous providential care in preparing rain for the earth. The psalmist joyfully writes that God covers the heaven with clouds. And by that simple statement, he is speaking of that work of God in nature by which he causes the water in the lakes and ponds and oceans and rivers to turn through the heat of the sun into a vapor that rises upward into the sky, a vapor that becomes the beautiful white, gray, black clouds that block 
the sun and the moon and the stars from our view. And then he says that God prepareth rain for the earth. And by that he refers to that marvelous work of God up in the clouds when he uses the colder temperatures to condense that vapor into liquid droplets, millions and millions of drops of liquid water. And then God uses the force of gravity which he has created and instilled into the world to bring that glorious shower of rain down upon the earth. Those gentle, glorious showers of rain to soak the earth, the valleys and the fields, the hills and the mountains, so that the ground is soaked with that precious liquid water. And when the psalmist says that God makes the grass to grow upon the mountains, he refers in that simple and poetic way to the fact that God causes the grass with its roots to draw that water up, up, up into the plant, into the blades, into the trunks of the trees, into the branches of the bushes and shrubs. And together with the brilliant rays of warm sunshine, through a process scientists call photosynthesis to create beautiful, lush, green blades of grass and green leaves on the trees and bushes and to burst forth in fruits and berries and nuts so that in this way God opens up his hands and gives to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. The beasts, the cattle, the horses and cows and sheep and donkeys scattered across the hills of Palestine. The young ravens which cry and caw and beseech the Lord of all creation to give them their food. God opens his hand to them and through that marvelous showering of rain and that marvelous flourishing of all those plants, he gives to each creature its food so that the animals can graze in the fields and the birds can pluck the fruits and berries and carry them off to their young in their nests and all the creatures of the fields and forests receive from the hand of God those good things. That's what the psalmist is saying in the text. But when the psalmist rejoices and sings praise to the God of all nature, then he is especially giving thanks that God is providing for us, his children. Because when God does all of those things, he is not just preparing grass for the fields and the mountains and food for the beasts and the birds, but especially he is opening up his hand to us, his children. Don't the scriptures teach us, doesn't our Lord teach us, that we are of much more value to God than many sparrows, than many birds of the air, than all of the beasts of the field? Doesn't our Lord teach us that if God clothes the fields and the mountains with beautiful green grass, and if he sends flowers to fill the fields with beauty, how much more will he clothe us, O ye of little faith? How much more will he not supply us with all of our needs? And he does. And he has. The psalmist says these things don't come by chance. 
These don't come to us from nature. These things don't come to us from other gods. These don't come to us through the power and ingenuity of man. But all good things come from the hand of our Father in heaven. So we simply make application to ourselves today. And then we take note as we look around us at the fields around Wingham, the fields throughout Ontario, at this very moment, gleaming with golden grain of corn and wheat and beans. And we see the farmers out there with their harvesters and combines reaping that grain. And we say to ourselves, God has again crowned the earth with his goodness. God has given food to us, his children. And when we go to the grocery stores in town, and we see there stocked on all of the shelves many, many good things, and we find in our pockets the ability to purchase those good things, and we know that that money in our pocket came from the income, from the job that God has given to us, then we say, I acknowledge thee, O Lord, for all these good gifts, the clothes that keep us warm, the roof over our head that shelters us from that same rain that sometimes can be so violent. All good things come from God. That's the simple teaching of the text. But the psalmist doesn't just have in mind all of these earthly gifts that are represented by the glorious showers of rain. But the psalmist saw in those rain showers a token of God's mercies, a token of God's rich and everlasting blessings. We have to remember that the psalmist lived in those days in which the outcasts of Israel had been brought back to the land of promise. He was one of those outcasts. The psalmist understood that he, with his fellow Israelites, were a sinful people. That God had chosen them out of all the nations of the world, but they had forsaken him and turned to other gods. They had worshipped idols, Baal and Ashtaroth, and they had turned against their God. And therefore he had sent them away into captivity to chasten the righteous and to destroy the wicked. But now God in his mercy had brought them back. God in his mercy had worked in the heart of the most powerful man in the world at that time, Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, so that he issued his decree to send the Jews back, to build Jerusalem, to build their temple, to build the walls, to build their houses. And no doubt the psalmist remembered what Jeremiah wrote 70 years before in Lamentations. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The psalmist knew that God had not forgotten his people. God never forgets his people. He never forsakes his people. He chastens and restores. He brings them back. He builds them up. He strengthens the bars of the gates of Jerusalem, verse 13. The psalmist recognized the goodness and mercy and love and compassion of Jehovah his God and the gifts of salvation. 
And the psalmist remembered the promises of God. The promise of God to send a Messiah. God kept that promise. The promises that he spoke through the prophets before the psalmist's day. The promises that he spoke through the prophets of the psalmist's day. And in the future from the psalmist. All of those promises that God spoke that he would send a Messiah, a king from the house of David, a priest, a prophet, who would suffer for the sins of his people. God kept his promise. He sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, the true and the only Messiah, the Savior of sinners, who died on the cross for our sins, who shed his blood to prepare for us the most glorious shower of spiritual rain and blessings by the sending forth of his Holy Spirit. He arose from the dead in victory, ascended into glory, and received from God the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit and sent him forth, poured him forth upon his church so that from that time of his ascension until today, the rain has poured down the glorious spiritual reign of salvation as the Holy Spirit enters into the hearts of God's people, into your heart and into my heart, and sheds abroad upon us the gifts of righteousness and peace with God and joy through the Holy Spirit and hope for eternal life. We are the people of God. We believe that we are the chosen people of God as well. And these are the things we are to remember and to give thanks for. In these recent years, the Lord has sent us into a sort of captivity, a sort of chastening as a congregation, as a denomination. But what we need to see today is that he has not forsaken us. What we see around us and what we are to be thankful for is that God is restoring us. God is building us up again. God is blessing us again with those riches and blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ. God is restoring us. How? Restoring us through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and how God showers down upon us the blessings in Christ. He's pointing us again to Christ as our only hope in life and death, to Christ as our righteousness and peace and joy. So to use the words of Psalm 126 that we considered last March on prayer day, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. When the Lord sends periods of chastening, his purpose is to teach his people spiritual lessons. And I have no doubt that at least one of the spiritual lessons the Lord is teaching us in these days is what the psalmist goes on to say in the rest of the text. Verse 10, 
He delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. God does not delight in the strength of the horse and in the legs of a man. Now, of course, it's true that the Lord takes tremendous delight in the strength of the horse and the legs of a man from the point of view that they are his creatures and from the perspective that they are his wondrous handiwork. Just look at the horse, that magnificent creature. God made that creature with all of its power and all of its strength and all that the horse has done for man throughout the centuries of history and all the joy that the horse gives to man. And God has created our legs. He has given to us the power and the strength to stand up, to sit down, to walk, and to run. And God himself takes delight in all his creatures inasmuch as they are his creatures. And inasmuch as they reflect his creative power and wisdom and ingenuity. But the psalmist means to say that God does not delight when people put their trust in the strength of the horse and when people put their trust in the legs of a man. In that the Lord takes no delight. And in the days of the psalmist, of course, that's exactly what men did. That's exactly what men did when they didn't look to the one true and living God. Just think, for example, of the king of Babylon and the king of Assyria and the king of Persia. They put their trust in the strength of the horse and in the legs of a man. The kings of Persia put their trust in their mighty armies and their mighty cavalries. The cavalries of Persia, those mighty armies of powerful stallions thundering into battle, clad in armor gear, carrying their soldiers with their swords and spears and bows, and the foot soldiers with their mighty legs running against the enemy, against the Greeks, against the Indians, against the Egyptians, waging battle and accomplishing the victory. Victory after victory is what the king of Persia experienced. And so the Persians put their trust in the strength of the horse and in the legs of the man. And when they accomplished victories against their enemies and built the massive Persian empire, they also sang songs of thanksgiving to those earthly powers. They sat around their bonfires after victory against the enemy, raising up a a mighty bonfire and having a, a wonderful feast And filling their mugs with beer and wine and clashing their cups together, they sang in a drunken stupor, giving thanks to their gods, giving thanks to their horses, giving thanks to their legs and their human powers. God takes no delight in that. God takes no pleasure in that. That's what the psalmist says. Those who take, those who put their trust in earthly powers, 
also give thanks to those earthly powers and not to God. How many people today on Thanksgiving Day will give thanks? They will state all the things for which they are thankful. But just like the heathen Persians of old, they don't direct their thanksgiving to God, but to earthly powers and to themselves. God does not delight in those who put their trust in the strength of the horse, the strength of the dollar, the strength of the economy, the strength of the armed forces, of the army and the navy and the air force, the strength of modern medicine and doctors and hospitals, of human ingenuity. God does not take delight in those who put trust in their own legs, in their own hands, in their own minds, in their own skills, in their own experiences, in their own wisdom. And that applies to the church as well. God does not take delight in the church that puts trust in the strength of their theologians, in the strength of their traditions, in the strength of their books and magazines, in the strength of their knowledge, in the strength of their convictions, in the strength and abilities of their own minds and their own skills. God does not take delight in the church that boasts proudfully, pridefully, and gives thanks no longer to him, but to man. Rather, the psalmist says, the Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him. The Lord takes pleasure in those that hope in his mercy. So I ask you, do you fear the Lord? Do you personally fear the Lord in your heart? Do you have reverence for him? Do you stand in awe of him? Do you marvel before him? When you think of his greatness and his majesty and his power and his goodness and his faithfulness and his love, I ask you, do you hope in his mercy and in his mercy alone? The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and hope in his mercy. He takes pleasure in those who fear him, knowing that Jehovah is the one, only, true, and living God, and there is no other God. Those who recognize him as the creator of the heavens and the earth, who does not faint, who does not slumber, who does not sleep, who alone does wondrous things, who is responsible for covering the heavens with clouds, for preparing rain for the earth and showering it down upon the earth, causing the grass to sprout and the leaves and the fruits and the flowers. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who know him, who love him, 
who worship him, who stand in awe before him, and who give all the glory and praise to him for their legs, for their horses, for their bodies, their minds, their jobs, their money, their freedom, for everything. Who give thanks to him and acknowledge him alone as God. The Lord takes pleasure not in those churches that pat themselves on the back for all of their accomplishments, for all of their developments of theology, for all of their convictions and stands for the truth and victories, but the church who gives thanks for those things to God. He does not take pleasure in the church that stands up and boasts The children of Abraham, the children of Abraham are we. We can never fall. The church that stands up and boasts that we have it and we are better than everyone else. That we have it with our 100 years of tradition and theology and writings and all the rest. No. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who humble themselves before him, in those who acknowledge him, 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 and give him all the glory for whatever we have. The Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in his mercy, not those who hope in earthly powers, in church traditions, those who hope in his mercy. Those who hope in his mercy, his mercy towards sinners. Those who know themselves to be sinners in desperate need of the mercy of God. Sinners who are going to die and go to the grave in desperate need of the mercy of God. Sinners who need salvation. Sinners who need Jesus Christ. Sinners who need salvation. Who need the blood, the blood of the only begotten Son of God to be shed on the cross for us. Those who put our trust in Him, who look to Him, who hope for Him, day by day by day. And then those who come together and have the opportunity on a Thanksgiving day truly give thanks from the heart for that mercy. Sing. That's the exhortation of the psalm. This was the experience of the psalmist. He went through things similar to what we've gone through. You could say perhaps even much more poignant and even more profound than what we've gone through. The complete burning and destruction of Jerusalem and carrying captive into Babylon for 70 years of harsh, oppressive captivity. But now, now, set free, brought back to the land of promise. And here comes the rain. Oh, the joy. Oh, the gladness and thankfulness that filled his heart. He calls out to his fellow believers, Sing.
sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing upon the harp unto our God. That word thanksgiving in the scriptures is a beautiful word in the original language. The word means to throw or to cast up. And the vivid imagery there is of a child of God so filled with a sense of indebtedness and gratitude that he throws up his hands to heaven where God sits on his throne in acknowledgement to God of all his goodness and all his mercy and grace. The psalmist says, throw up your hands to heaven. Cast up your hands to God. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge him. Give thanks to him. Give praise to him. Sing unto him. Sing. Let your heart be filled with a song of gladness, a song of joy, a song of thanksgiving. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Give thanks to him. Give praise to him. Sing upon the harp. The lyre was an instrument that they used in those days, a stringed instrument which made those beautiful, melodious sounds to which the children of God could sing, and those musical notes would carry up their songs of joy toward heaven. Sing upon the lyre, upon the harp, upon the organ, with music, lift up your songs to the Lord and give thanks. There's much to be thankful for today. So, beloved, let us sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Amen. Father, we give thanks to thee, and we are grateful for thy word, which is so rich, comforting, and which directs us in the way that we should go. Thou hast chastened us, and we are thankful that thou dost continually chasten us. We are thankful that thou dost not destroy us as we deserve, but that when we are drifting, when we are neglecting to fear thee, thou dost discipline us in thy love. And we pray that this day might stand as a reminder and an encouragement to us of all the good and blessed things thou hast done for us. May we be filled with songs of thanksgiving this day. Go with each of us, bless us, and care for us. And may we have a blessed day of giving thanks with our families unto thee.